This podcast brought to you by ACEST, the American Society of Information Science and Technology, the Society for Information Professionals, by the IA Summit, the premier gathering place for information architects and other user experience professionals, by the IA Institute, the global community of practice for IAs the world over. Join the conversation and become a member at iainstitute.org. By Vitamin Talent, you get UX, we get you jobs. Visit vitamintalent.com. By Morgan Kaufman, through superior print and digital content, our authors aim to educate our readers and inspire innovation. And by Boxes and Arrows. Visit boxesandarrows.com slash about slash participate to be a part of your peer-written journal. In this episode, Chris Baum speaks with Donna Spencer, Lynn Paulschuk, Justin Spencer, and Aaron Joe Ritchie at the 2012 IA Summit about their interactive panel discussion, Taking the Plunge, Diving into Indie UX. They share practical and personal considerations of being an indie designer, including how to get over the fear of making the jump, where and how to find clients, managing the business sides of design, and what it's like to work alone. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. Today, we're talking to Justin Davis, Lynn Polischuk, and uh, Donna Spencer. Um, they did a session today at the IA Summit around becoming an independent UX consultant or freelancer. Erin uh, Jo Ritchie also uh, spoke. Uh, she will join us in a little bit. The, the session was really great. Um, I think you had a lot of engagement and a lot of interest. Um, interesting thing was there was about half people who already were freelance and half that weren't. Um, talk about why you think those people that are already freelancers came to your session. Ooh, can I say something? I think that I think that there's some there's I think there's two things. One is I want to see if these folks do it the same as me, mm-hmm. and one is, and this might not come out very properly. One is um, I might get a chance to share my experiences in there with other people. Mm-hmm. So I think there, there there's both of those. Yeah, mm-hmm. I yeah I think you're exactly right. Like I I would think for me anyway, I can imagine it's a lot of you know I I work. You know, especially when you're indie, you kind of work in this silo or like this echo chamber. Yes. And, and a lot of it's like, I want to go here if what I deal with is the same as what other people deal with. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this whole session, our, work, our presentation came out of us sitting down at the indie table last year. We had an indie table at lunch at IA Summit last year. Yeah. And we had started talking and then eventually it came to, let's do an actual presentation. And I, I think a lot of it is just the whole... You know, other people who spend a lot of time alone. Yay! You know, and you want to kind of you know, talk to them. Yeah. Very cool. All right, so do me a favor. Like, uh, let's just go around and tell me the story of how you became a freelancer. And Lynn, why don't you go ahead and start? Sure. Um, so I, I have kind of a, a weird background in, in UX. I started out in marketing, mm-hmm. um, and I got into web analytics because I had really crazy bosses that wanted to know why we were spending money and where we were spending money and where we were making money. Um, and eventually, through Web Analytics, I got into doing UX. And my last, my last full-time job, um, I was working for a company that was a product company, did software, website building software. And I was doing a lot of work around analytics and UX, and I really enjoyed it. Um, but we got to a point where there just I wasn't learning anymore. We, mm-hmm. you know, we had built up six months of work for the dev team to do. I was kind of twiddling my thumbs. And I had a, a really, really great boss who just kind of pushed me out of the nest and said, you know, stay with us on contract if you want. You know, we'll write you a six-month contract so you'll have income, but go forth, learn, do things. And, uh, and he, was, he was a very entrepreneurial person himself. 
Um, and so I just had that push, and so I went indie, and I did that for four or five years, so it was good. Very cool. Yeah. Oh, and, and by the way, congratulations on your new job. Oh, and thank you. <laughs> thank you for still doing this, because I think some people probably would have thought, oh, I'm going in-house for a while, or you know, for maybe a lever if you love it. Yeah. And they would have been like, I don't have that anymore, but you still have that experience, so thank you for sharing it. Yeah, and I think the thing is, is I'm still a consultant, but I'm not self-employed. Right. I mean, I still feel very indie. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's the same sort of work thing, but it's sure. it's without the pressure of being self-employed. Okay. Donna? I was working for a consultant, um, and I liked the work, but I was working on uh, in, in domains that I didn't really like a whole lot, mm -hmm. and I was learning that I wasn't a very good employee, <laughs> and one day I just had this stupid epiphany and just went, I could do this myself. Why am I working for somebody when I can do this myself? And and I, I think, oh, I'll tell you where I had that epiphany. I had the epiphany at IA Summit. Um, <laughs> and like, you know, hanging around at the conference and just going, I have to do this myself. That might have even been the year I cried on stage. Um, and I went home and resigned. <laughs> and did it for myself. Yeah, I worked, uh, I worked for four years in-house, um, and I started off doing development work and just general project management work and ended up in UX mm -hmm. at the end of the tenure. And uh, just like Donna said, I realized that I was, I'm a really hard worker, but I suck as an employee uh, because I just cannot get along with authority and bosses and all that kind of thing very well. And so, um, and I had always wanted to do my own thing. I knew that I never fit that mold. And um and so it took a while. I moonlighted for about six months doing both to see that I was going to be able to do it um, because I lived in Nashville at the time and there was not very much UX work. So I needed to make sure that I could vet the market and actually find that I would be able to eat. Right. Uh, and then that eventually just sort of, yeah, just made the jump. And uh, at my at my wife's uh, very eager pushing, she told me, she said, because I was very reluctant, you know, and I was like, I don't know, you know, this, this is going to be really scary. She was like, look, you're not going to be happy unless you do it. If you don't quit, I'm going to call and quit for you. So <laughs> you, need, you need to do it. I made the jump, and, uh, and it's been great. Yeah. Very cool. So, you know, like the, making the jump is one thing, but surviving the initial periods is another. So I, I, whomever wants to go first is fine, but I want to, under, I want to hear a little bit about how that first however point felt and what was the moment you knew you had it? So I, I, Donna and I were talking about this at lunch and this happened to me just a few months ago. I, I'm about right now, about two years ago is when I first went indie and I was putting together all my profit and loss statements and all the stuff that you do as a business owner um, and looking at the past two years. And what I realized is that when you first do this, when you start this, you're really dumb and you're really insulated and you're, you are immune to common sense for a period of time. And I think it's like when you go off to start something, that's just how it is. I, like, I don't know. We're, it has to be that way for people to start businesses. Because I looked back at it in the first six months to a year. I said to my wife, I was like, how did you ever let me do this? I mean, like there were whole months where we, I didn't make any money. You know, I was like, it's zero, you know, in an entire month. I was like, how in the hell did I get through that? But the, the weird thing is, is like when you're in that initial phase, you're really excited and you're, you're, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I don't think you really peek your head up to notice, or at least I hope you don't. Because I think if you actually looked at it objectively, yeah, you'd be scared. You'd be scared. You, you'd never do it. You'd do it for two months. You'd be like, screw this. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I 
fluked a whole lot of good stuff. And I'm trying to remember the sequence. But I think early after I started, I, I would have done a few bits and pieces of projects. I think then I took a government contract, like an hour rate contract, probably doing four days a week. And that would have gone for some amount of time. And then that would have fallen apart at some point. And then I had work with a government department who I was good friends with the, the team lead. So there was always work there. And then, then my marriage broke up and all of a sudden I was single and having to deal with all of my own expenses. Right. And that was when things got really scary. Um, and I then spent like three years of just working my butt off. Mm -hmm. Really, really just working and not thinking about anything else. Working, 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 working to get enough money in the bank to have all of the buffers in place to deal with being single and freelancing, which is a really hard thing to do because there's, if there's no work, there's no backup second income. Um, so there was just actually really a really long time of being of this being quite tough mm. and just taking whatever work came up so that I would always have work. And, and it, yeah, it took a long, it took a good couple of years to get enough, you know, money in the bank and mortgage comfy and everything that I could finally start to relax and if, and say no to work knowing that other things would come up mm. and not kill me. And I, I mean, for me, I was really lucky because I had, like I said, I, I had a good job and I kind of got pushed out of the nest, um, but pushed out of the nest with a reasonably sized contract. Um, and I continued working for that company for, you know, a few months and, it, you know, at first I, I got to a point where I was too busy to actually keep working for them. And at that point I thought, oh, I got this, you know, like about a year in, I'm fine. You know, I'm too busy to, you know, sorry guys, I love your product, you guys are great, but I have to move on. I'm too busy now to do some other projects. And, um, and that, you know, I, I was okay for a couple of years, but I think looking back now, I, I took on projects in the beginning, you know, in retrospect, I never would have taken on. I mean, I... I caused myself so many headaches and so many problems in those first two years, just picking the wrong clients, taking on the wrong projects, not understanding project management fully. Um, so it was, like I said, I, I, was, I had a really kind of weird, wrong view of things because I went out with a contract, so I went in with a safety net and then I got really like brave and I thought, I don't need the safety net. And then it was like, whoa, <laughs> this is really hard. And I, you know, and in that moment of like freaking out, I picked up projects that now, like I said, I, I wish I had never heard of. So it's tough for the first couple of years. And then I think I got to a point recently last fall where, you know, I'd been doing it for about four years and I thought, wow, okay, I really do got this now. Am I happy? This is where I want to be. And mm -hmm. I was like, no, you know, so, yeah. <laughs> you know, am I, am I feeling, am I growing, am I learning, am I, am I getting everything out of this I want to? So that's why I made a change. But when I got to that point where I finally felt like I got this, I kind of took a step back and, and got some perspective on it and thought, well, not yet, not really. So mm. that's what changed. So actually, I want to welcome Erin Jo Ritchie. Hello. Uh, she is, was the uh, fourth member of the team giving the presentation today, and she's joined us. And so Erin, I just want to give you a little context. We're talking about when you first became a freelancer. Um, I think maybe if you wouldn't mind stepping back and give us the story from how you became one, and then how you survived to the point where you feel like you have it. <laughs> I think I'm still working on that part where I'm trying to feel like I still have it, or I finally have made it. Um, but I have been an independent user experience professional for just over a year now. 
and I actually I officially sort of came into it um, last year when I got laid off from the company the agency that I was working for and this was a point where I, I knew it was coming for some time we had I had joined the agency about five months prior under the understanding that I would come in as a digital analyst and transi transition over to a role of information architect, which wasn't an area that they were currently filling within the company. Um, and before the holidays, we had a talk about the work that they were getting in and they decided that they didn't want to take the agency in the direction to really focus on user experience or information architecture in any kind of way. Um, and we talked a bit about what my role would be within the company and what direction I wanted to go with my career. And I, I didn't want really to focus um, on the same types of marketing that they were going to pursue with the company. Mm -hmm. So I, I did get laid off, but I, um, I knew it was coming, but I didn't really have um, a net or a backup plan put in place yet. I was working up to that point. Um, mm -hmm. And I sort of had the feeling at the time that if I just had one or two months more, it, it would have been better. Um, so I didn't have a set of established clients when I went independent. I didn't have projects lined up and waiting for me. Um, and I wasn't really sure where to step initially. Um, I had moved to Portland, where I'm based right now about nine months prior to that and I was still establishing myself in the community but one of the good things about the move was that I came in fresh to a new city and said I'm gonna put myself in the user experience community here in Portland mm -hmm. and so a lot of the people that I had been meeting knew me as someone who did user experience work even though the jobs that I had were in marketing agencies as a marketing position mm -hmm. so um, there was definitely about a month where I wasn't sure what was going to happen or what my next steps were going to be. But during that time, I was meeting some people that I had only maybe talked to on Twitter before or talked to um, over email. I met them in person. Um, people passed around the word uh, that I was looking for work and that I was specifically looking for user experience related work. Mm -hmm. um, I had a couple people approach me and ask if I wanted job offers to move back into positions in-house working on marketing um, and I actually I said no I think I want to focus more specifically on user experience in some way because that's really what I had been trying to get to in the first place and I was fortunate enough that um, through word of mouth I was able to get a contract with an agency um, working in-house for about three months um, which gave me something to step into and it, it gave me a paycheck for um, almost three months period of time and full-time work at a point when I didn't really know that many people, not that many people knew that I was an independent or a freelance or was out there looking for work. And so that gave me security for a short period of time and enough time to continue to network with people, to interact with people, um, to get my name around a bit more. Um, from there, I've really I've worked with a variety of different agencies that have come from from leads um, from people that I've known from just the initial job um, and that I had worked with before in marketing agencies and then it's continued out to the point where people have started to contact me personally that aren't part of marketing agencies or design agencies and I've begun to collaborate directly with clients and to the point where 
now all the people that I'm currently working with actually aren't based in Portland at all. Um, they're either in the Bay Area or they're in the Seattle area. And for the most part, I haven't even met them in person. And mm -hmm. so that word of mouth extension has branched out to the point where I'm not even focused locally in my own city anymore. Um, so I have... I've worked with marketing agencies, a variety of marketing agencies in different roles for better, for worse, and then with other independent user experience professionals as well. Right. Because there's actually quite a community of freelance and independent people where I live. Mm -hmm. um, so once they start to know who's independent and who's looking for work and who's too busy, the word passes around. Um, so I've collaborated with some of them, and then I've really begun um, collaborating more with independent visual designers Great. as well and developers. Okay. Awesome. So now I'd like to talk about how you formed your philosophies around things like um, rate setting mm -hmm. and uh, project capacity planning, because as an independent, you have to be very careful about that. Mm -hmm. Talk about the challenges that you've, um, you've seen around both those issues, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah. Let's start with Justin. Yeah, uh, rate setting, I, um, I was actually influenced in my thinking on this by Whitney Hess, who um, has a... Has a a stance on, on billing that says that she only bills by the project and I and, and it made a lot of sense to me and it's it's all I've ever done is flat rate billing by project instead of hourly. Um doesn't work that way for everybody and that's fine. Um but it has worked nicely for me. Um <clears throat> it makes it a little bit tougher to track margins and that kind of thing, but I'll take the trade-offs. Um as far as kind of capacity planning, my philosophy on capacity planning is bring it on. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and that and that really is a is yeah, about 80% of the time a sound approach and the other 20% of the time an incredibly stressful approach. Um, I very rarely, if ever, if never, um, turn away work. Uh, I have recently, yeah. um, because, just because of out of absolute sheer necessity, but I don't like to because I don't want to get that stigma of, oh, he's too busy, don't right. call him, and all you that say, kind of thing. If you thing. say no enough, they stop calling you. Exactly. And like, and it, this is funny, because when I first started, I thought sales was going to be the problem. I thought finding work was going to be the problem. And I remember saying to my wife, I said, you know, if I could just get the funnel full of projects, I'll be fine. I can figure out how to get the work done. That's just mechanics, <laughs> right? Yes. It was the dumbest statement I've ever made in my life. Yeah, no, cheers to that. Oh, it was yeah. horrible. And so now I'm, I'm eating all of those words every right. single day. Right. Yeah. yeah. So for me, um, I have in my mind what my set rate is. Um, very few of the projects that I've done in the past year have been at that set rate. When I first started, I was approached with an offer to be a contractor, and they said, well, we're willing to pay you X. Do you want this job? And I said, sure, because I don't have any other jobs, and I need a project. Um, from that, I found that working with agencies, the agencies that I've worked with have set rates for contractors that they're willing to pay. Um, and depending on what my schedule is, I can either say no or yes. My preference is to not go that route and work directly with clients where I have more freedom to set my own rates. Yeah. Um, and actually, in a lot of cases now, when I do that, I, I keep track of all my time, um, but then depending on the client and who else I'm collaborating with, I may set it as an hourly rate or I may calculate um, a project rate, which is 
fairly closely tied to my estimate of the hours that I'm going to be working on the project. But right now I'm pretty split down the middle between people that I work with where I'm sort of charging my rate that I set for the project and agency work that I've accepted at their flat agency contractor rate. And in the future, I really hope to push away from that type of agency work and get more towards the projects where I'm in complete control of the pricing. How about you, Lynn? Um, so I think, yeah, I, I kind of along the lines of what Erin is saying is, is very similar to where I'm at. You always, you know, tend to make more money when you're working directly with the client. It's just economies, the way that it works. I mean, an agency is charging the client a rate. Uh, they have to make some money. They have a lot of overhead. So, you know, it's just depending if, and there's situations I've been in where you are a subcontractor of a subcontractor and, you know, your slice of the pie just gets smaller and smaller. Um, because they can only build the client so much and then you know you're kind of the one getting paid at the end of the day so agency work can be dicey in that um, it, it tends to be lower rate because they have their margins on top that they need to make um, but also it tends to be hourly which like Justin I find is really difficult um, agencies also you know they'll they'll kind of come to you with these sort of fixed rate projects and it's it's a bit weird you know they've kind of sketched out in their head what they think something how long it should take I say they're accurate about 20, 30% of the time, maybe. <laughs> so it's, yeah. it's tough. You know, they'll come and they'll say, we need all this done. And, and you go, well, that's, that's nice, but it's going to take twice as long as you've kind of budgeted for. Um, so this is what you can actually have. Um, the other problem I find with billing hourly is that people, they really confuse effort and duration. Um, I don't know if you guys have run into that, but it's like you said 20 hours. That was a week ago. Why isn't it done? And uh, mm -hmm. you have to go, well... No, I mean, I had 20 hours, but not all in one week for you. And, you know, and that's part of capacity planning, too. When you are dealing directly with clients, you have a lot more freedom to kind of go, okay, I think this project is probably going to take me 40 work hours. So I'm going to tell them that that's going to take at least two months because <laughs> you have to kind of balance it out. It gives you freedom to juggle other projects and kind of schedule things. If you have travel coming up and you, you kind of know that, you can do this project, but you know it's, it's going to take some time and you've got this window where you won't actually be able to work. You have more flexibility there. Um, and that was one reason I really tried to get away from working with agencies is just because I really, you lose that freedom. You're on someone else's timeline. You've got a whole account team there. They've already made promises to the client most of the time you know, when they, before they even bring you in. And um, yeah, dealing directly with clients, you make a lot more money and you do have that ability to really schedule yourself a bit better and to give yourself some buffers mm -hmm. and windows. And as Justin said, sometimes on those projects where you're billing on a project basis, you know, if you guesstimate 40 hours and it takes 60, you've got to eat that sometimes. Um, but, you know, sometimes you estimate too high and you end up making money. And I mean, sometimes, honestly, if scope does blow out in the middle of a project, you go back to it with a client and you say, look, either we start scheduling phases and you understand that you know you're not going to get all this in the original agreed upon thing. You just it comes down to project management, and that's a that's one of the biggest overheads in this game is project management. You don't get paid for it. Right. My uh, context is 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 really different in that the last four years I've been running conferences, and before that I was I think you know there was a couple of years of 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 writing various books as well. Mm. So I have always had, well always. For, the, for a while, I've had a structure where I'm doing other things that were important and necessary as well as client work. So I only take on clients, except in some, some very, very rare exceptions. I only take on clients where I can work flexibly. 
where it isn't like they can't say to me, Donna, we need you for the first two weeks of April to do this thing that starts and ends because that doesn't fit. I can't do the conference work and do that. Mm -hmm. So I very rarely take it. So because nearly all my clients are flexible, most are local, most of people I have relationships that have been going for a long time, I'm, I'm not on retainer, I'm not on call, but I'm on, hey, we need something done, can you do some work for us? Mm-hmm. So I do this, we've had, like Justin and I have had all this discussion a couple of times, I do almost all our rate billing. Because I don't do projects. Mm. I do stuff for people. Mm. And, and I do stuff for people I like. So, um, and because I've always got the conference work to fall back on, I don't have to worry quite so much if, about that jiggling of, well, we've got some work, no, we don't, we didn't get approval, no, no, no. There's always work to fall back on. So it doesn't bother me to, for something to fall through because there's always, there's always something to do because I've got conference work. Right. On, so capacity planning is always about juggling. Like after summit, I, I, I think there's a couple of meetings in my diary. I have a client who I've got this long-term work with, but I really don't know what the first week of April looks like. I don't know what the second week of April looks like, but I'll figure it out. It'll happen as it goes. Mm-hmm. On rate setting, one of the funniest things that ever happened to me was I was standing in a, um, a bar in Austin with Jared Spool and Dan Willis, um, and somehow the... Um, uh, the discussion turned to rates and I somehow mentioned my rate and they both practically pushed me into the corner, you know, poked me in the chest and said, Donna, you will increase your rate to something (laughs) that represents your skill level. And I defended it for ages, like, no, 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 whatever. And I went home and it it gradually tickled into my head and now I'm charging what I'm actually worth. That's a really important point. And I wasn't. Yeah. Yeah, that's a super important point. And that's one thing, I mean, I've seen, I had a conversation last night with a bunch of um, designers about this. Uh, Don't accept low rates. You hurt everyone when you accept Mm -hmm. low rates. Yeah. It kills us all. Um, It devalues our work. Um, I think anybody out there who thinks they can hire a UX designer for 30 or $40 an hour, no, um, you know, even for junior people, that's low. Um, but I, I'm finding this a lot and working a lot more in my local UX community as a leader and, and doing events and things. And I keep running into people who are independent and contractors and freelancers. And they, they say to me, you know, God, you know, how do you, how do you charge that? Like, you know, I'm, I'm barely getting X amount per, per dollar per, you know, per hour. And it just, it kills me. And the reason that you're getting those low rates is because you keep accepting them. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. so it's it's got a that's that's one thing that's is very important is, is getting a sense of rates and, and really valuing your time properly yeah and you can pivot on that and turn those low rate things into opportunities right. uh, where clients may come and say I don't have much money right and you can restructure an engagement and say yes. well then if you don't have much money and I'm not gonna like do this whole project for that little bit of money because it it's wrong on all kinds of different levels <laughs> but I say, what, what? my financial controller won't let me do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That is me. Exactly. Yeah. Right. That would be my wife. But it's an opportunity to say to the client, you know, okay, so you only have X amount of money uh, that you are willing to spend. Let's find out how we can use that money the most effectively right. and we'll do something. Right. You know, so you can, it doesn't always work. Some clients you just have to say, you're crazy. You, you obviously don't know what you're Well, it's also a good barometer. Is it, like, is it a client you want to work with? If you have somebody yeah. come to you who is like, all right, we want all this stuff, and, you know, we only have, like, $3,000. And 
And and you kind of to me it's it's a good like do I want to how much they value design yeah. if they've budgeted you know ninety nine point nine percent to their development team and oh we need you to come in and hit it with a pretty stick we have a thousand bucks so I mean to me is that going to be a successful yeah. engagement I think sometimes budget and again as Justin says it's a thing where you can dig into it and find out why they have so little budget for design sometimes it's like well it seems to me like you've really allocated a lot of money to dev what are they actually building oh you don't know. And help you spend less on your development because exactly. you actually have decided exactly. well what your scope is. With my clients, and this is like hard and fast, for every dollar you spend with us, you save like two on dev. It, I really yep. have found that on so many projects. You have a lot of, especially startups, companies that are just getting into this, they will radically over budget for development costs and have nothing for strategy or planning or design. And it's so cart before the horse. Yeah. You know, you, mm. You don't know, and, and oftentimes we can help you kind of prioritize features, and we can help you sort of figure out how to build what will best support your user, and you don't need all this other stuff. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, it's a good investment, and so I think it helps me to kind of root out clients and, and pick projects properly when I talk with them about budget, because it makes strategy and priorities clear. Okay, so we could seriously go on all day. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I think I'd like to do like a little lightning round here at the end. Um, love you to say one more thing. It, it would be awesome if you could take something that wasn't a part of the conversation this morning or, or this afternoon um, and just impart your last little bit of wisdom um, to get people, to keep people going. Uh, I, I said this this morning, but I'll say it again as, as a last piece of wisdom. Time track everything. <laughs> if you time track, you know what you've done. You know, you can measure it. You can predict the future better. Um, so I think, like I, we mentioned, I'm not actually self-employed any longer. I'm now working as a consultant um, with a great UX studio in Vancouver. But uh, I've had a lot of people ask me if I would trade in the time I spent as an indie, and I absolutely would not. Um, I mean, I, I learned so much over four years. If you are in a position where you want to be a better designer, you want to understand the field better, being independent and bouncing from project to project and client to client and, and getting those wins and, and having those engagements, I wouldn't have got the experience. I think I probably got 10 years worth of experience in four years. Mm. I feel that way. Mm. And, and it's, I mean, it's helped me so much to grow. So, I mean, I'm no longer self-employed, but my time as an independent was the most productive time I've ever had. I probably will ever have, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, if nothing else, transitioning over to being independent is an excellent way to get deeper understanding into how you work. Mm -hmm. Um, as an individual and to what's really important for you to grow and develop yourself and to learn about your working style and the kind of projects that work well with you and where your interests really lie and it's certainly a, a very great challenge which is good and it's it's a different challenge that than you face in your typical office work environment so if you're ready for something new for a different challenge um, to learn more about yourself and to grow at a deeper level I think I think it's definitely a a good place to gain that insight on yourself. Mm -hmm. I, I have two. I'm to break <gasps> Justin. I, uh, I would say um, if you are indie and you are, are looking around at projects and you're wondering what clients to work with and whatnot, somebody, I heard somebody say this once, and it's so true. It has to fit at least one of three criteria, preferably two. It has to either be fun, fortune, or fame. <laughs> and every project has to have at least one of those, preferably two of them. You probably will never find one that has all three. No. Um, I, I think that making the jump 
to being an indie, uh, there are a lot of mechanical aspects to it. How do you manage projects? How does the design process work? How do you find clients and all this kind of stuff? Those are simple to solve. The, the things about being an indie that you don't, I don't think you can prepare for and that uh, people don't think about is that it is, it's more than just a work arrangement shift. It is an entirely different lifestyle yeah, shift. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it has very real personal implications and psychological implications. There's a lot more doubt and certainty and all this. And so while there are the mechanical things that change, the kind of ripple effect through your personal life and, and just everything, mm -hmm. it, it touches every part of your life. Mm -hmm. and, um, and it is very exhilarating, very fun, but it is always stressful. <laughs> <laughs> Stressful. <laughs> it's always stressful. You just got past the stressful part. Right? You got your. Like, it's not a lot of stress, but you know. They, uh, so eventually, there's hope. There eventually, it becomes less stressful. Yes. Good to know. Yes. So thank you all so much. This has been a great conversation. Um, if you are hearing this and you found this interesting conversation, check out the podcast. Watch the iasummit.org site. Um, and please, if you are interested in exploring freelancing, reach out to one of our lovely guests here, or definitely talk to your local um, UX communities because you must talk to people. That is the absolute key, is yes. that they will help you through it. And that's one of the best parts of being a UX professional. Thank you for tuning in to the Box Narrows podcast. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. Many thanks to our sponsors, Vitamin Talent and Morgan Kaufman, for their generous support and without whom we could not bring you these shows. To hear and read more from the best in design from around the world, visit boxesnarrows.com and join the conversation.